1: Let's begin. Welcome to a very special edition of the RV Podcast. Today, we are having the first RV Book Fair. Our first guest today is Gary Smith. Gary, tell us a little bit about his writing journey.
0: Hello, I'm Gary Smith, the author of five novels in the Warren Steelgrave series and a collection of short stories and poems Writing came late to me, I was um, retired and found a small village in Italy. And so started Italian classes. And in that class, uh, we had to write uh, in Italian. And I found out I loved it. So after the class ended, I started the first book as a way to satisfy that itch to write And to kind of leave something for the family to read about my experiences in Italy. Little did I know that in writing that book, uh, it would become uh, popular and a second book would be uh, demanded. And so the second book led to a third book, led to a fourth book in the series, and led to a fifth book. Hemingway said that you can only write about things that you have experienced. So all the books in the series are around a home in in Italy in a small village. Uh, They're mysteries, Uh, people enjoy them. And I think part of the reason is uh, a lot of the books, a lot of the stories, uh, from my experiences here in both Italy and in the United States. The book of the collection of short stories and poems, they, that come out of me wanting to expand my, my, my writing ability to see if I could write something other than uh, just this series. And I was surprised that it would win an award, that it was well-received. And I can tell you that uh, when you win a national award, you really do feel like you've become a writer when your peers have, have given you the nod, so to speak. Writing has not ever been easy for me. Uh, I'm dyslexic, uh, had a bad speed impediment until I was 12. Uh, but I think dyslexics are high energy and have, uh, Spend a lot of time in their imagination, maybe, and uh, think of always thinking of things. And so that's the plus side to, to, the, to, the, to being dyslexic and having uh, a creativity side, a, a side that's creative. The downplay is keep trying to slow the mind down, trying to uh, keep focus when you sit down to write. And what I do, what I've learned to do uh, is to as if anybody's ever meditated, you know that if you meditate the same time of the day in the same chair at the same time, you're you're, at part of your mind uh, gets into like almost a muscle memory for athletes. When you sit down, it just kind of knows where it's going to what's going to happen and it quiets. For me, I sit down to write always in the same room. Uh, always to jazz. It's something about the music when I turn on jazz that uh, slows down the thinking process and allows, my, allows me to write without my mind getting too far ahead of, uh, of the keystrokes. It's always the same jazz. It's uh, uh, kind of the album Kinda Blue by Miles Davis and, uh, and an album by Chet Baker. And by the first measure of kind of blue, uh, I'm into the story and to where I left off. I don't try to overthink it. I don't try to think out the plot. I don't outline any of the story. I'm as surprised as my readers at the twists and turns because a lot of times I sit down to write. I'm thinking my characters are gonna do something and uh, by the time I read what I the last half a page of what I wrote yesterday, they're shaking their head, and they're saying, "We're going somewhere else." And they take off with it, and it's almost like I'm just recording what they're doing and their dialogue and their scene. Uh, I've been asked by other people that want to write. How, how do you begin a story? How do you how how do you start a new story? And for me, it's always the same way. I just sit down, some jazz playing, low light, and start. Um, I'll start with whatever comes to mind. It might be uh, the room I'm sitting in. I'll start to describe the room that I'm sitting in. And so all of a sudden it's a writer who's uh, uh, staring at the keyboard trying to think of what is he going to write for this next story. But then his mind is, is full of his best friend who was murdered yesterday after they had lunch and him being the last person to be with, with him. He's the suspect. And so by the time you describe Oh, okay. By the time I described the room, his feelings, being in the room, his worry, you're almost done with the first chapter. And then the wife sticks her head in the door and says, hey, are you busy? Uh, the police are here. And then that takes you into the, into the second story, or second chapter. And it's just chapter after chapter after chapter like that. And just that easy. And uh, for me anyway, and uh, pretty soon, And'm near the end of sixty thousand words or sixty two thousand words after seven months, and I can't remember the first part of the story because I've been just focusing on on chapter after chapter, and uh, I'll st- stop when I finished the book and uh, go through the first rewrites, and that's when I start realizing it's a good story, it's a bad story, and uh, I'm always surprised at that point. And I find myself getting into this. I've written this story. I shouldn't be enjoying it so much. I should be bored with it, right? And if I'm enjoying it, then I figure, well, my, uh, my readers probably will also. And um, and that's, how I, that's the process for me. I uh, uh, don't overthink anything. And uh, if I do, my mind gets scrambled and starts going in every other direction. I also think it's important if you're going to be a writer, you need to read a lot. You need to read a lot of books. Um, as a dyslexic, it was always hard for me to read, but I didn't realize how many books I had read as a as a child until I started thinking about it. And i had I had read the Canterbury Tales. Uh, uh, uh i read um breakfast at timfani's um i, I read uh, uh to kill a mockingbird all before the seventh grade and uh the trouble i had in school is what they were having us read i, I dyslexia gets real bad when it's a textbook or i'm i'm, I'm reading a science book for a science test, or, <laughs> but uh I've always been in the characters and, and, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, the characters just fascinated me and, and allowed me uh, to keep picking up the book every day, even if maybe I could only read two, three pages before I started getting too anxious. Uh, it uh, held my interest to the end of the book. And um, so I write kind of the same way. Some days I get um, only 250 words. Other days I might get, I've had good days where I've gotten 1,400 words, you know. The goal is always an average of 3,000 words a week. And uh, I'm a very disciplined person, so I can generally get that done, even if I have to do 250 words in the morning and 250 words in the afternoon to get in my 500 words for the day. Um, I can seem to make that happen. Uh, Raymond Chandler also said, it's my excuse to put it, stop writing after two hundred and fifty words is that if uh, if you're pushing the story, it's time to stop and go do something else. If the story's pulling you, then continue to write. And so uh, that's that's pretty much uh, uh, my philosophy also. And I also think it's important to write every day. and I tell people, uh, you need to write every day even if it's gobbledygook, even if it's junk, sit down and write a paragraph. You know, that's what waste baskets are made for, you know, you throw it away. Uh, Or the next day you look at it and say, oh, you know, i got an idea here. And you you expand on it. Um, But it's, you got to peel the onion. You got to write the words to get down to what you really want to write. And um, that only comes from writing every day so I tend to try to write it, something every day and uh, so, so that's, uh, that's, my, that's my secret um, I know others have uh, started at the end of the book and written to the book to the ending other people uh, I, I, I was at this writers group and I, I couldn't believe this lady was writing scenes out of order and didn't know how she was going to put them in order or um, you know, outline a whole novel. One guy said, how do you write a novel? How can you outline a whole novel? And I'm thinking, well, you can't. <laughs> the answer is, you. in my mind, in my world, there's no way I can, out, I can think through a whole novel and outline it. I, it's just, um, not in my realm of thinking. So, so good luck with your writing. And, uh, I encourage everybody to write. It's, uh, it's a good way to figure out who you are and um, read a lot. Thank you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
1: Our next guest today is Navin Shrida. Let's listen to his great story.
2: Hello. I would like to thank Mrs. Matuonto for giving me the opportunity to introduce myself and say something about my life. I was born in India and I grew up there and left the country coming down to Germany for my studies. I was in Berlin and I studied chemistry and chemical engineering. That was the time of the cold war with all kinds of <laughs> with berlin always on the world stage the world coming up and the time of kennedy and khrushchev the time of cuban crisis the time when kennedy came to berlin and said i'm a berliner But my life as a student, I was concerned, I had other worries, I had to support myself. So I used to work during my vacation, semester breaks in uh, different places, in Germany, of course, and also in Spain and in France, I picked up the languages. And then I completed my studies, got my PhD and got married to a Berliner and we left Berlin after that coming down to West Germany where I got employed as a scientist in the research department in the chemical industry. That is about my background of the first 30 years, let's say, and and uh, during that time I also had other hobbies, one of them was ventriloquism and I became a stage performer and my wife and myself travelled the world uh, attending conventions and also performing, so this was in addition to my profession. And uh, I got to know wonderful people, um, artists, and it's another kind of a world for me than the world of the scientists. Of course, also because of my profession, I had to travel a lot, uh, presenting my papers and inventions. When I finally retired from the stage, I wrote up my first book, That's where my writing career started and that book is about Antilochism, a complete guide about the principles, practice and performance. Because I had missed such a book and I knew that others would like to have such an instruction and that's the reason I wrote the book, a manual let's say. At the same time Um, I was also um, interested in 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 my background in Berlin, meeting people coming there 15 years after the Second World War and meeting all the people who either spent their childhood in the war or even later, who were widows in the war like my mother, mother-in-law and many people telling me the stories about the wartime and also the stories I lived with during the Cold War with the West German and East German, called them occupation. And uh, so these stories I, I heard again and again, repetitively. But I knew that Germans knew all these stories, but they were not so well known abroad. For instance, in India. So I just wondered if I should write write up all these and thought of making my wife the subject of the story. So her biography with her eyes viewing the kind of world she had to face. Starting from the Second World War, later on um, being bombed off in Berlin, settling down in East Germany, then how she fled the communist regime back to Berlin, and so on. And she lived through the whole time. There are quite a few stories by people who left the times during their childhood, and for instance, they Came off to America or to Canada and but she went through the whole time and whereas that is she was a representative of all the Germans, her mother all the more as a uh, war widow, at the same time I felt it would be of interest for people abroad and also for the progeny. So I wrote the book the very first book which is uh, the, the biography, <laughs> in my, uh, the, which, I, which I called the Candlelight in a Storm. I had in my mind mainly my mother-in-law who was representing all the women in Germany who were ev- with the husbands either dead or prisoners of war. And it's the women who brought up the country after it was de- demolished in 1945. After that book, I was uh, writing poems also, and once coming back from a poets' conference, I just wondered how the poets should ought to differ from language to language after all, poetry is language bound and almost untranslatable, I would say. And I wanted to know about the ancient poets. When I went to check up the internet I found the most ancient, the very first recorded person of literature is a woman A Sumerian priestess of around about 2600 BCE. So I checked up and found that she has written, she has also claimed the poems that she has written as hers, and there is inner solid material. And she has also presented uh, an antagonist uh, who, a king from a neighboring city assaulted her so i just wondered why this story is not so well known and then, then i decided to write her biography or let's say the events in her life based on her own account and that became my next book i called the starlight in the dawn it has been well received and, uh, and uh, it was published about two years ago, a year ago, and this is nothing but an extension of what I had discovered uh, dealing with the German women. Women can be really resilient and resourceful uh, in the times of need, and there are quite a few untold stories. Uh, they have been somehow underrated, mainly in history. So the next book that I wrote was uh, is about uh, an Egyptian queen, the Queen of Ramses II, and how she manages a peace treaty uh, together with the Queen of the Hittites. There are two major powers. And they they came up to They came up with a peace treaty, and this peace treaty is historical. It's on record. It is real, and that was the next story called uh, a Hittite and a shaman at Queen Nefertari's secret service. Now, all in all, what I would like to conclude my few remarks with the with mainly some some kind of a advice to new writers do not expect um, or plan ahead what kind of way the market is for what you want to say you just say it you just write it down the best way you can for instance after i wrote my book uh, about the germans uh, when I visited the, uh, the, in Miami the World Fair, I was surprised that there were so many people coming from Argentina and from uh, Brazil as tourists and they were all lining up to get a free copy of my book because they had German ancestors. I had never thought of that. So you just write from the straight from the heart, you write down what you feel and you are unique and your book will be unique and the rest is just plain luck okay thank you for listening i do hope i have given you some kind of a foot for thought and i'd be very happy about that thank you and goodbye
1: our last guest is vivian shepera
3: vivian tells us how she ended up
1: in cincinnati
3: Hi, my name is Vivian Chapra, and I have chosen a story to share from my book Everyday Magic. I want to tell you the story about how we came to live in Cincinnati because I think this is one of the most powerful stories of my life. When it comes to being a writer, it always feels like there's both an inner drive and outer guidance and they're interacting with each other to activate the energy to create. And this was very much in play when it came to finding our place in the world. So the story of how we came to Cincinnati has two parts to it. You see, we're from South Africa, and we very, very much wanted to emigrate to the U.S., but we needed to get green cards. And just like it is for everyone, this was a challenge for us, and we had to find a path that would work. So the first part of the story is that there was a series of calls that kept coming. This was strange in itself. What had happened was I'd made quite a name for myself as an Alexander teacher, and I began to get these calls from Johannesburg. We lived in Cape Town. I simply apologized to the callers because there were no Alexander teachers in Johannesburg, but after the third call came in one week, I realized, something's going on and I decided to take down names and numbers. I probably should explain what the Alexander Technique is and it's a hands-on method which means we put our hands on people and we retrain neuromuscular and musculoskeletal movement. And that sounds boring, I know, but let me assure you it is anything but boring. It is the most amazing experience actually Because when an Alexander teacher puts her hands on you, you immediately begin to experience yourself in a completely new way. We literally teach you how to be different, how to release patterns of tension and pain, and how to enhance your performance. And we give you this new experience so that you feel light, and easy and comfortable in your own body. To top it off, this is a lesson. So we are teaching and developing neural pathways so that you can learn this for yourself. Anyway, that's an aside. So back to the story. The following week, I received more calls. And I just asked the callers, where have you heard about me? And what's going on? But it seemed like it was just a timing thing. Everyone had a different source and a different reason for calling. And now I had begun a list of names of people in Johannesburg who wanted lessons. The next person who called from Johannesburg clinched the deal. She represented a meditation group and everyone in the group wanted to have a course of lessons. Our fate was decided. Neil and I would go to Johannesburg. Except, where would we stay, where would we work, and who would look after our baby while we were working? The logistics were really challenging, and our motivation was unclear. Uh, Why are you going to Johannesburg? All my clients asked me. The reasoning was opaque. I was beyond fully booked in Cape Town. I certainly didn't need more work. And I certainly didn't need problems to solve. None of these issues that were associated with the trip, it made no sense. I just simply said, I don't know why I'm going. I'll find out when I get there. The calls were forceful, the pull was immense, the dynamic was coming from outside me, and it was my duty to respond. Despite all the issues our trip actually fell into place at the 11th hour we were offered the home of an up-and-coming celebrity speaker who was going to be in cape town at the time we wanted to be in johannesburg this was a most unexpected and miraculous solution the home was large big enough for us both to have rooms to work in and it came with a nanny for our toddler's son We shipped our car and our teaching equipment and we flew to Johannesburg. Our trip spanned the Easter weekend and the full moon, and this was going to turn out to be significant. At the beginning of the first week, we decided that Neil would teach the meditation group and I would take on the stragglers. About three people who had committed to a course and one person who wanted to try a lesson first. By the end of that first week, we were both fully booked giving 10 to 12 lessons per day. The news that Alexander teachers were in town had rippled through Johannesburg and we were inundated. The weekend was such a relief. It was also a turning point in our lives. I was lying on the bed, looking out the window. And the window perfectly framed the full moon. You know, I do love the moon. And I was watching these storybook clouds and the wind in the trees. And they were just drifting across the heavenly body. And I fell into a spontaneous trance. And in the trance, I had a vision. The vision was of another city built on hills because Johannesburg is built on seven hills. And from this other city, also built on seven hills, I saw a red carpet unfurl and reach across the ocean from the U.S. to Southern Africa. And I followed the carpet in my mind and saw that it came from Cincinnati oh i said cincinnati that evening i turned to neil and said to get our green cards let's go to cincinnati as alexander teachers let's ask uncle herbie to employ us as alexander teachers in his medical practice and let's get our green cards via labor certification which means having skills that someone in the u.s can't fulfil in that area. If we can come to Johannesburg and have a viable practice within two weeks, then we can do the same in the US. And there, in that moment, we found out why we needed to go to Johannesburg. Only by having that inarguable experience could we form such a bold plan. We needed to discover that our rare skills were in demand and that we could do it. When we got home, we called Uncle Herbie and he said, Yes, of course. The path was not easy, though. There were many I's to dot and T's to cross. We went to Johannesburg at Easter 1988 and we arrived in Cincinnati, USA on October 29, 1991. And we were so grateful that we had responded to the call and gone to Johannesburg to find out something we couldn't find out at home in Cape Town. Everything I've done in my life has followed a similar pattern, a combination of push and pull, invitation and response. There is no question in my mind that there are outside forces guiding us, nudging us, inspiring us. Everyday Magic is a compendium of such stories, but the adventures continue beyond that book, recently delivering my most recent publication, a textbook entitled The Complete Guide to Crystal Surgery, as well as Opportunities in Radio and TV. I only want to add that I believe this magic is available to each and every one of us. All we need to do is hear the call and respond. If you enjoyed this episode,
1: be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time.